This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hi, friends. Just a quick note before the show begins. I wanted to let you know that this and the past few episodes have had some annoying issues with audio quality. I just want to let you know that we are aware of the problems and we're working on some solutions to get those figured out for you. Thank you for your patience. And now, on with the show. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Teets and this is Sorta Awesome. Welcome back to the show where every week we go exploring in the pursuit of awesome. You can count on us to keep you informed of all the best shiny things out there when we share our awesome of the week. In each episode, we also take your questions and bring you the answers you need to help you uncover all the awesome within your own life. Everyone's favorite Hollywood housewife, Laura, is back this week, and we have a whole bunch of fun stuff to talk about. Later in the show, we're going to follow up on one of our most listened to episodes of Sorta Awesome ever. That would be episode 14, the friendship episode. We're going to follow up by talking about some of the harder parts of friendship that you all shared with us after that show aired. We're also going to talk about books and do a face-off of sorts between our two all-time favorite novels. Finally, we're going to air our dirty laundry by confessing to our guiltiest of pop culture indulgences. Now, normally, you know, we would start the show with Awesome of the Week, but I have two housekeeping items to mention before we get started. The first one is I wanted to thank you all so much for taking the time to fill out the survey. We mentioned it on the show last week. We wanted to get a picture of who's out there listening. Thank you all so much for taking the time to do that. We have a really great idea of who is listening and what you're enjoying about the show. The other thing I wanted to mention is that the Sort of Awesome podcast finally has a place on Instagram. You can find us on Instagram at Sort of Awesome Show, and we'll be posting all kinds of things related to our awesomes of the week. We'll be sharing some of the things that you share on Instagram and use the hashtag Sort of Awesome to share with us. So if you're on Instagram and you'd like to follow us there, we are Sort of Awesome Show. Now we can dig into this week's episode, and Laura's going to get us started with Awesome of the Week. Okay, my Awesome of the Week this week is not very Hollywood housewifey, but is very California, so I'm running with it. My Awesome is Birkenstocks. Birkenstocks. Laura's always talking about her beloved Birks. Listen, I'm late to the Birkenstock game by three decades. <laughs> I was say maybe. a couple of decades at least. But they are awesome. Okay, so here's the thing. I started wearing Birkenstocks like two or three years ago because this other mom in my mommy and me music class had them. And they were super cute. She had like a black pair that was kind of patent and cute. And I was like, oh, I didn't even know Birkenstocks made cute options. Right, right. Because what did you think Birks were before you saw the cute versions? I saw what everybody thinks Birks are, which is <laughs> hippie shoes. Like dirty hippie out in the woods shoes. Dirty hippie pot smoking shoes. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay, so you saw and some cute ones. So I saw some cute ones, and um, now I will say, like, you know, Birkenstocks had 
a sort of resurgence in the 90s grunge culture. So I had high school friends and even some college friends who were wore Birkenstocks, which was a throwback to their original, you know, hullabaloo in the 70s when the, the hippies did make them very popular as footwear. So it wasn't like I was totally unused to seeing Birkenstocks, but in Los Angeles proper, I hadn't seen many. It's kind of a different part of LA that I live in. And all of a sudden, besides the mom in my music class, I started seeing them everywhere. They were gaining a lot of popularity, apparently, like three-ish years ago. And I think it's because Birkenstock started making cuter ones. I honestly do think that. So people who had maybe worn them for foot problems or whatever, all of a sudden it was a whole new group of people wearing it. It was almost like a hipster kind of thing, the hipster mom kind of thing, Mm -hmm. at least in my neighborhood. So I bought my first pair, ones that kind of look like, you know, that have like a thong. Yes, right. (laughs) (laughs) Not that kind of thong. Like a flip-flop. They're called the Geyser Burka Floor or something. (laughs) I don't even know if I'm saying Am I butchering that? Who knows? Anyway, that was the first pair I bought. And I started wearing those things every single day. I swear to you, they are so comfortable. And then I got into it and started reading about, because I'm not this much of a nerd typically, but I started reading about the actual ways in which they are good for your foot. I have high arches. My feet hurt a lot. At the time I was wearing high heels a lot. I've given that up. (laughs) And so I started purchasing Birkenstocks. I have four pair of Birkenstocks. Don't add that up. That's amazing. Um, I love the fact that I don't have a single pair of of Birkenstocks. I haven't worn them. I I think in college was the last time I wore them. And and you are a dirty hippie. I am the dirty hippie here. I am not the one who is traipsing about LA in, you know, in actual fashion at all. Uh, So I love the fact that you have four pair of them. I know. Okay, that's excessive. The four pair is excessive. I didn't even mean to confess that today. It just came out of my mouth. I have a brown pair and a black pair, and then I have a winter pair. Don't judge. What? Like, I think, I know. I want everybody to give them a try. I mean, I do wear them. I almost wear them as house shoes. I don't really like slippers. I don't know. I wear, which a lot of people in Germany, where Birkenstocks are originally from, they are almost house shoes. Like people hmm, don't. Interesting. So I've heard. Mm-hmm. Don't wear them about quite as frequently as we do. But they're just like anyway, shuffling around the house, or I guess I think they're kind of like I sort of equate them with UGGs, like really useful and and um, very comfortable. Totally ugly. Yeah. Yeah, they are. I mean, I have UGGs. I have Uggs, too, for counting. <laughs> That's fantastic. I love it. Okay, so that is your Awesome of the Week. I'm assuming that you my have My Awesome been... of the Week, yeah, it's my Awesome of the Week is Birkenstocks because I love them, have been wearing them all summer, and yeah. highly encourage anyone else who's been on the fence or even poo-pooed them <laughs> to give Birkenstocks a second chance. That's my awesome. They, I love them. They are ridiculously comfortable. And let's be honest, who is better at making themselves comfortable than hippies, really, than the crunchy granola types? We're all about the comfort. Right. So totally makes sense. Okay, I love it. My awesome of the week is um, is completely unrelated to that. Sometimes ours match up, you know, but this week, no, they're, they're complete and total opposites. However... I actually do think you might have been one of the first people to tell me about this thing. So my Awesome of the Week is is an app, and it is the Facebook Groups app. Mm-hmm. And I have been meaning to mention this on the show, honestly, for weeks. I really meant to mention it way back when we very first started the Facebook group for the show. So the show has a Facebook group, the Sort of Awesome Hangout. And I've been meaning to mention this for weeks because I do know that there are people, number one, who really are not into the group's feature of Facebook. And then number two, um, maybe have so many Facebook groups that they don't really want another one to try to keep up with. Here is the thing. The group's app is a total game changer for Facebook for me. We are um, entering into a season of our culture where politics and political discussions are ramping up. But even besides that, you know, there's just so much junk in my Facebook feed. 
there's just a lot of just random, I don't know, distraction and noise. The Groups app allows me to use Facebook in a way that is actually really enjoyable and um, a lot less a lot less noisy and distracting than trying to fish through my huge, you know, the regular Facebook feed that you get. So what the Groups app does is you can imagine it's pretty simple. It just it when you open the Groups app, it just shows you what's going on in your groups that you're a part of. It'll give you like a little notification if there's been new activity in the groups that you're in. I love it. And I'm going to share with you all a hack that I came across myself, I guess. I don't know how I figured this out. I sort of randomly bumbled my way into this. But on Facebook, when you are looking in your, if you're looking at your group, a group that you're in on Facebook, you have the option to mark that group as one of your favorites. Did you know this? Is this something that you do? Okay. I don't know if this is common knowledge or not. So what you can do is, um, in your, if you're looking at a group's page in a web browser, in the lower right part of the group's like cover photo, you'll see three dots. If you click on that, there's going to be a drop-down menu. You can mark that group as a favorite. That's one of the options from the drop-down menu. Then when you open your group's app on your phone, it is going to show you those favorites, the ones that you've marked as favorites at the top, and then it sorts out all the rest underneath those. So I have mentioned before on the show that I have a little bit of an addiction when it comes to the Facebook group. I don't know if it's because I'm an ENFP and I love all the people all the time. I don't know. But I have, I, it's an obscene number, an absolutely obscene number of groups that I'm a part of. But there's only like six that are actually the ones that I use the most. So I marked all of those as favorites. Then when I want to check in on my groups, I can just open it up on my phone. And it's so simple so much more of a minimalist approach to Facebook. And honestly, it really, I feel a little bit terrible saying this because I don't want to sound like I don't value the diversity of opinions that my friends bring to social media. But sometimes all of the opinions and all of the like exclamation points and all caps stuff, it gets a little exhausting to the point where I'm like, why am I even doing this? Why am I even on Facebook? So because of the groups app, I can just go in and kind of check in on what's going on in my groups that I am involved in. And I can just let everybody else, all of my friends do their thing on Facebook without me getting all riled up behind the scenes about what people are saying and posting. I, I feel like the more I, I talk, like I, it because I feel like the more I talk, the more neurotic I sound about about my Facebook usage, y'all. I really don't overthink it as much as it sounds like I do as I'm talking. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I like the Facebook groups app because I feel like you can still take a Facebook fast, mm. which we all need, mm-hmm. especially during um, election season or if you're just. For me, it's usually like I've been wasting too much time on Facebook, so I sort of try to make myself stop for a while. But I don't count checking in on my groups in the same way. And so there's no temptation, there's no even ability to go check the main feed if you're only checking in your groups app. And some of my groups are not just for fun, they're uh, for work staff or for yes. or very, very personal friendships to me. So checking in on those groups does not feel the same to me as checking main Facebook, so I feel like I can still do a Facebook fast and still check in on my groups and I'm caught up with the most important part of Facebook to me. Yeah, that's a great way to explain it too. I have a really good friend who um, her small group from church, they have their own face like secret Facebook group um, as well. And she's talked about the same thing that sometimes she would like to quit Facebook altogether, except that that Facebook group for her small group is like it's really the main way they communicate with each other. Nobody really does group emails and those types of things anymore. And so if she quit Facebook altogether, she'd be really disconnected from her small group. So I know that, you know, again, groups is, that's by far one of my favorite features of Facebook. I know a lot of people use groups really strategically and for really important things in their lives. So I totally agree with you that it's a great way if you need to step away from Facebook for whatever reason to stay connected to your groups on there. So the Groups app, it's my awesome of the week. Now, so usually we would do our question and answer segment right now, and that's what we're going to do, except it's going to look a little bit different this week. Uh, we only have really one specific question that we're going to get to later in this segment, but we do want to do some follow-up 
to some of the things that we've already covered on the show. I was just talking about Facebook and friendships, and those are that was a big part of our discussion back in our friendship episode, which was episode 14 of the show. Laura and I talked and talked and talked about friendships, and of course, Facebook plays a big part in that. You guys, we got so much feedback on the friendship episode. Laura, I don't know about you, but I had I had people, friends of mine, who were um, sending me private messages and texting and sharing things with me on Voxer, things that stood out to them about the show. Some great things, but also some really painful things that they were going through with friendships. It really elicited a huge response. I was surprised by the response to that episode because we, um, behind the scenes, worked really hard to keep that episode light. And um, I was surprised because we belly laughed so hard making that episode. We did, yes. That that some of the people who came to give me their reaction was complicated. Um, Not to our show, but to friendships. And that people felt sort of emotional about hearing people talk about friendship in that way. And that just surprised me because I didn't know that so many people had painful friendships in their life or, you know, things that they wish had gone differently or times of loneliness, all of that. I I did not realize how universal it was. And I did not realize that it would strike that kind of chord in people when we were trying to be, um, open about it. And and what people came forward with a little bit was the hard parts about it. Yeah, that's really true. That's really true. In fact, one of the things that we did to create a tone for that show that was a little bit more lighthearted, that wasn't quite so intense and serious as we actually took out a a long segment that you and I had recorded in that show where we talked about the friendship breakup, which is a thing that happens for sure, but you just do not hear people talk about that much. And we decided, oh, this might be a little bit heavy. This might be a little much for this episode. So we ended up just chopping that whole part of the discussion out. But Laura, since so many people have come to us and shared with us on a personal level, some of their challenges with friendship, I was going to ask you to kind of share just a little bit of what we had talked about on that episode that didn't make it on air um, about the difficulty of when a friendship genuinely needs to come to an end, that it's the healthy choice for one or both parties to sort of just cut ties and move on. I can speak to this because I've had several friendships end in my adulthood. And, you know, some some friendships, of course, you wouldn't put a period on the end of that sentence. They just fade away or you grow apart or you um, only keep up via Christmas card or something like that. And social media has changed that a lot because you can be Facebook friends with someone that you used to be very, very close to and now are not. And that's almost like a strange tension to live in. For me, it's almost like easier to either be friends or not be friends. To be still connected to someone that you've really separated from is uh, actually strangely awkward. But in the, um, I'd say the last 10 years, I've gone through two kind of major friendship breakups and it's really hard and it's almost like a death. And I, I hate to liken it to that death is, is, is so final, of course, but, and I mean that in that there's a grieving period, there's a mourning period. Um, you miss the person. It's like a, you know, a a serious breakup or a divorce or something when two adults decide to part ways or one of you decides to part ways and the other one isn't quite there yet, but either way you end up, uh, with a fracture. It's, it's really difficult. And I just wanted to validate some of the people who came forward and said, you know, I loved hearing you guys talk about friendship, but there's this other aspect of it that doesn't get talked about very often. And I last year, um, went through a friendship breakup and I mean, I guess I'm still sort of going through it in a way that, you know, you miss people, you, even if there's not a big scandalous fight, there certainly wasn't in my situation. It was just a, a, a parting of ways from two people who loved each other very much, but just um, have reached a lot of differences in their life. And I think that it happens. And I think it's really hard for adults to do that. They don't want to talk about the relationship. It's way easier for adults to let things fade out. 
but I'm not like a fade out person. I like to like, <laughs> I like to have a DTR. I like to have a define yeah. the relationship. <laughs> right, right. In fact, um, a couple of weeks ago, I sent you a link from an article that I found on a website called The Mid, themid.com. And there was a, a post on there that I thought was so good and really reflected what you were just saying, that sometimes as adults, the really actually grown up and mature thing to do instead of just letting something fade out is to like actually have a conversation about it. So this article on the mid is called the meta friend, meta M E T A, the meta friend it's by Amy McElroy. And essentially she talks about that, that the hallmark of a really great friendship is a willingness to be adult enough to step back and discuss the friendship, like to actually put the question out there, like, have I done something that upset you? Or even just saying like, are, are we good? Are things okay between us? And I really liked what she said in the post she wrote, the power of the vulnerability and handing yourself over to someone and saying, I care about this relationship. And I see that it may be broken. I see that I may have done something to hurt you. Can you please tell me so we can fix it? That's the only time in my life I can remember anyone caring enough, being strong enough, and being open enough to express those feelings to me. I thought that was so good and such a great way to capture what it takes to be in a friendship where there is that open discussion that's, it's, it is meta, really, to stand back and say, like, where are we in this friendship? Are we, are we okay? Or, you know, are things going in a, into a bad place? And, and sometimes those trouble spots can be remedied if, if you catch it early enough and you're like, okay, let's kind of get this straightened out so that we can move forward. You might be able to head off a breakup type situation if you are willing to sit down and communicate about what's going on in the friendship. It's something that we talk about doing in marriage a lot, uh, a hallmark of a healthy marriage is open lines of communication, but I feel like we don't really talk about the necessity and the healthiness of doing that in friendship. No, in our culture, it's not um, expected or even um, considered worthy of your time to work on friendship in the same way that you're encouraged to work on your marriage or your relationship with your mom or your relationship with your siblings or anything where you can get oodles of help on how to make a relationship healthier um, or better for both parties. That is not spoken about in friendship. I think people feel like, well, you choose your friends or you unchoose your friends. Like if it works, you know, friendship should be easy, I think is what we expect. And, you know, there's obviously a lot of merit to that, but for long time friendships or friendships that mean a lot to you because of circumstance, what it doesn't even matter. It is worthy to work on them or to be honest with each other. I think um, this part makes me laugh. It's considered really juvenile to, to say to a, to a friend or another woman, now that we're adults, like into our thirties to like, label someone a best friend. Right, right. You know, yeah. it starts to get like, people start to be like, really, you're going to use the word bestie. <laughs> right, yes. Yeah. Like, you are too old for that. And, but to me, I like having those definitions. I have more than one best friend. I have a best friend from this area of my life, and I have a, a best friend from this area of my life. And I don't need to, like, hashtag them on Instagram. <laughs> right, yes. But I've actually made an effort to um, to tell some people in my life, like, I just want you to know that you are my closest friend mm-hmm. right now or yeah. in this situation or, or whatever. And every time they have reciprocated or appreciated that I said something basically awkward. <laughs> no, I think that's so good because I was kind of framing this in the, the manner of thinking about um, trouble spots in a friendship. But I think that's really that's great advice to, you know, like you said, allow yourself to be vulnerable enough to be a little awkward and be like, hey, listen, I know this might make you a little squirmy, but I just want you to know, like, really, really, you are one of my closest friends. I I think that is super powerful. And like you said, because as we move into this area, this season of our lives, when we're in our later 30s, or really anything beyond sort of high school and college, it can get a little bit 
well, awkward to talk about stuff like that, but I think it's so important and, and really a good and healthy thing to do. But then the flip side um, is that sometimes you have to say, this is not working for me. Right. This yes. is, um, and that's an even, of course, an even a harder conversation to have, but sometimes it happens. And if it's happened to you or if you need it to happen in a relationship in your life, like it's, it's not something to push aside and be like, oh, I'm not going to think about that. It is a real thing. Friendships are a really important part of like spiritually healthy woman. And that usually entails going through friendship breakups or fades and you can be sad about it. Totally. Yeah, I agree. So good. Like I said, we just got so much feedback on that episode as a whole, people talking about all the different aspects of friendship. So we would love to hear your thoughts. If you have follow-up thoughts on this (laughs) follow-up about getting a little meta in friendship and having those conversations, we'd love to hear you share what that has looked like in your life. Now, following up on a different episode with Laura, all the way back in episode 10, which was the Being an Adult in LA episode with Laura, she talked about one of her favorite genres of writing being the true crime genre. And that got a lot of conversation too. And I was just noticing, Laura, that on your blog on HollywoodHousewife.com that you have a brand new page that you've just put together that looks at your taste in literature on a bigger spectrum. And that is your uh, reading tab on Hollywood Housewife, where you have listed your favorite books of all time. I noticed when I first clicked on that page, front and center, top of the list, Stephen King's It. I am wondering, is that indicative of its place in your heart? Was that random that it just happened to be the first one at the top? At the top of your list. That it's not random. <laughs> I had a feeling it wasn't. I I smiled when I clicked on that page because I was like, oh Lord, here we go with Stephen King. <laughs> I am so passionate about Stephen King. Okay. So I did a reading page on my blog. Thank you for mentioning that. I just did it. It's a list of my favorite books across all genres. I write on my blog a lot about what I'm reading and what I've read. And it always gets a ton of feedback. So I finally, after ages, did this page. And if you go to it and I have memoir and novels and beach reads and books on parenting and all kinds of sections that I have, on that whole page, there's only one repeat author. (laughs) And it is Mr. King. (laughs) The venerable Mr. King. (laughs) He has, in fact, three. Wow. Three books on my tops of all time. And the first one is It that you mentioned. It's a thriller. It's totally scary and awful. The second one is um, a novel that is not scary. This is what I tell everyone when they raise their eyebrows of my great love for Stephen King or they say that that they can't handle scary books or anything like that. I tell them immediately to go read 11-22-63 by Stephen King. It's a little bit of time travel and things, but it's not scary. It's not horror. And it is fantastic. I am obsessed with Stephen King. Here's the deal. Okay. I started (laughs) because you're looking at me blankly. No, no. I'm I'm not trying to look at you blankly, but I do have, I want you all to know that I'm, (laughs) I'm looking at Laura right now. She is like beaming, like like rays of light are behind her as she is beginning to expound on Stephen King. And I would love for you to convince me because as I've told you in the past, I've never read a single page of Stephen King because I'm terrified. I'm terrified of the scariness of his stories. He's He is scary. I mean, I'm not going to take that away from you. I started reading Stephen King in the fourth grade. I think this explains why murder comes up <laughs> so much in our conversations. Take fourth a minute. Grade, that's Take young, a minute. Fourth grade. That's younger than Daisy, who is my 10-year-old. You were younger no, than her when you first started. It's I, so inappropriate. It's like the it's like a hundred thousand times inappropriate. Okay. But I did not have I was blessed hashtag blessed with parents who did not censor what I read ever, ever. 
Right. So um, I had a, a friend down the street from me in elementary school whose mom read a lot of pop, you know, fiction, bestseller type of books. And so she had a bookshelf full of that stuff. And um, she had It by Stephen King. And my little friend and I were both big readers even at that time. And we start, I don't know why. I think my friend had read that first and passed it on to me. And from that moment on, however old, how old is fourth grade? I don't even know. I have little kids. Like nine. But from like nine. Yes. Is when I started with my great love. Which you would maybe think that's why I'm attached to him because it's like sentimental or something. Because I read him all throughout my adolescence, all through teenagerdom, everything. But no, because that book I just mentioned, 112263, I went back. I mean, that's new. That's in the last few years. And when I read it, I was like, nope, he is a genius. It's not (laughs) sentimentality. That's amazing. I love it. I love your passion for him. Um, Yeah, go ahead. He's not very, he's not considered highbrow because he writes horror and fantasy and he writes about monsters and he writes about coming back from the dead and he writes about... um, you know, mental illness that turns into murder. And he, he talks about the kinds of things that are boom in the night, you know, that your deepest fears in your closet kind of thing. And so he, I think, and he's been such a popular success. Like he sold millions and millions and millions of books. And I think because of that, he's not taken seriously as a, writer of literature. Right. I think that's a great point. But he is an amazing writer. And if you, if you're not on board with his sentences, which you should be because his sentences are amazing, (laughs) you can't deny that he's really, he's completely changed or defined a genre. But because he sells to the masses, critics think, well, if the masses love it, then it can't be oh, well sure. done. Yeah, sure. That is that is a very real bias, I think, against, against writers who create a lot of writing. I do think that what you're saying about um, being so prolific does make him currently seem more lowbrow. But I just want to remind you that Charles Dickens was paid by the word. He yeah. churned things out very quickly. And now he is considered one of the greatest storytellers of all time. People study him in college. I actually don't care for Dickens, but that's a side note. I think personally that in the future there will be college courses studying King. I truly believe that people are going to study the way that he tells stories and the way that he writes and gets into the imagination of the reader. He is... I truly think he is brilliant and that one day we will consider him the same way we consider Dickens. That is so interesting. So interesting. So he's somebody, he and his works, you think, are going to sort of stand the test of time. I do. I think that's a great, I had never thought of that comparison with Charles Dickens, but he definitely did. Absolutely turned out the books and um, appealed to the masses. Like he was popular in his own time, appealed to the masses and, and was able to do that. And that's, that is, I had never even thought about that, but that's a great. And he used lots and lots of extra words. Yeah. Charles Dickens loved the words. Like I said, he was being paid by the word. So there's part of that, I'm sure. But his books are hundreds, a thousand pages thick. You know, Dickens books are not all of them, but are, are very dense. <laughs> yes. <they> so, are. <laughs> Yes, that is a great comparison. I hadn't thought about that. So of of Stephen King's works, if you were to pin down and say, I love them all, but this is probably my favorite. I mean, could you do that? And if so, would would it be the favorite? I don't love them all. I should say oh, that okay. first off. Um, I mean, I, I love him and a lot of things. I do not love all of his stories. He doesn't love all of his stories, actually. Um, I just finished rereading, I've read it several times, his nonfiction book about writing called On Writing that is absolutely excellent. For writers and non-writers alike, if you're a Stephen King fan but not necessarily a writer, you'll still really enjoy this because he talks a lot about his own process and what he was doing in his life when he was writing certain books um, and why he likes certain books or doesn't. There's a whole section 
um, where he speaks about how he does not like Carrie White, the protagonist in Carrie. He never related to her. He never fully understood her. Still to this day, he doesn't understand her. Um, she was really useful and that he learned a lot from Carrie, but he never connected with Carrie. And so it's like entertaining to him that a lot of his readers call that one their favorite. Anyway, it's a super interesting nonfiction book, which is on my list as well of, of King favorites. And then I really loved it. It is scary. It's about children. And I read it when I was a child. So I think as an adult, that would have be harder for me, I'll be honest. But since I read it as a kid about kids, I really liked that. But it is about a, um, like a monster clown that lives in the sewer. (laughs) It's so terrifying. I am just imagining either of my daughters picking it up. Like they would never sleep again. Never. I just, okay. Okay. But okay. So I'll just say this about it because there's some parts of it that are really difficult (laughs) but (laughs) if you are not convinced by what I'm saying go to the library it will be there it's very old so I I doubt it will be checked out just read the first chapter of it it's a it's a simple chapter it describes a little boy who's chasing his um kind of homemade sail sailboat down uh down the street because it's raining a lot and it's kind of flooded just re- nothing scary happens in it. Just read that first chapter of the boy chasing his sailboat down the street. And I think you will see what I mean about like, whoa, like this is a different level of storytelling. All right. If you promise the first chapter is not scary, then maybe I'll pick it up <laughs> to this well, day. I mean, I'm feeling like I'm <laughs> I need to go double check. But I, that scene stands out so much as like the first time I read it and every time I've read it since just being like, this is, dude, this is like a different situation. Okay. I love it. You know, I, um, I do think though that a big part of our all-time favorites, all of us, as we think about our all-time favorite books, a huge component of that is who we were and where we were in life when we read it for the first time. Like, I'm sure that even to this day, if you pick up it, that you can remember nine-year-old Laura picking it up and, and, and being like, oh my gosh, I did not know that writing could be like this. I didn't know a book could be like this. Um, That's so interesting to me because one of our mutual friends who is in her forties just read for the very first time, read The Great Gatsby, which is my favorite book of all time, my very favorite novel of all time. And she finished it and she was like, I don't get it. Like, how is this, a, how is this considered the great American novel? I did, the tone is, what did she, I can't remember what she said. It wasn't engaging. It didn't provide a very accurate picture of the time. I don't know, just things that were like, I don't, I can't. I don't even know what you're saying to me right now. <laughs> <laughs> you were so flabbergasted by this assessment. I was flabbergasted. That is exactly the word. Um, so my favorite novel the, is The Great Gatsby, F. F Scott Fitzgerald's uh, sort of, you know, timeless American classic. Um, I've written about The Great Gatsby more than once. When I was blogging, I wrote about it. In fact, I'll, I'll throw a link in the show notes to... Um, to sort of my love letter to Gatsby that I published a few years ago. It's so strange to me to think about that someone would read it and be like, eh, I'll pass. But actually, I say that. I do have to say, the very first time I read it, I was a 16-year-old junior in high school. I read it as many people did in the upper grades of high school, at least in our country. And I mean, I liked it. And I, I thought it was a good novel, but I didn't, I wasn't like in love with it the first time I read it. Then I went back when I was in college, of course, I was an English major and had to take, I took an American novels class and and read The Great Gatsby again. And and that was when, so I was like 20 or something. And I read it and I was like, oh, this book is amazing. This story is fantastic. The writing is stunning. So a lot of the themes from The Great Gatsby 
I think really appeal to a young person, right? Don't you think? I think I, an idealistic person, a person who believes in love and sacrificing your whole life for one great love and revenge a little bit and um, the games you play when you're in love right. or when you know someone's in love with you. Yes. Yes. So that was, and I wrote about this when I was blogging um, in in that Love Letter to Gatsby. I I wrote that when I was teaching the novel years later as an English teacher, that I always used that aspect of it to get my students interested in it. I would tell them like, the first time I read Gatsby, I didn't get it. The second time I read it, I, I found it to be mesmerizing and I couldn't put it down. And the difference was by the time I read it for the second time, I had gone through like a complete and utter devastating heartbreak, romantic heartbreak. And once I had gone through that, then I could identify with Jay Gatsby and his crazy quest to uh, to find Daisy Buchanan and to, to sort of um, make her fall in love with him again. And it wasn't until I had gone through this devastating heartbreak that I could really get it. Well, when you're 16 or 17 and you are thinking about, that's all you think about, right, is relationships <laughs> and boyfriends and girlfriends and, and having your heart broken and unrequited love and all of those things. It was really a great way to draw in my high school students. But Really, I mean, truly, the older I get, the more I appreciate the way Fitzgerald put words together to form, you know, what would eventually become The Great Gatsby. Actually, honestly, Laura, this sounds a little crazy, but his writing reminds me of your writing so much in that Fitzgerald's writing is really sparse. Like, I feel like he does not waste words. In a, in a, and I've told you this for years behind the scenes, that that's my favorite thing about your writing is it's not like my writing is, it's all over the place. I love a lot of words. I'm very, I guess, like Dickens in that give me some words, I'm going to use them. But yours is a lot more clean and clear cut. And you're a brilliant editor when it comes to writing. And it's the same thing with Fitzgerald. His approach to Gatsby is not sprawling. It doesn't take you a long time to read it. In fact, I reread it every spring because it's so easy to read, I feel like. But also, it's just, ah, I don't know. I, you can go on forever with King. I could go on forever with Gatsby and the way Fitzgerald wrote it. It's just so, it's just so powerful. You reread it every spring? I do. I do. I mean, I may not sit down and read every single page. I have my copy that I taught from. And so it's got all the highlights and I've got post-its in there. It's, it's actually genuinely falling apart. There's pages falling out of it all over the place. So maybe it's more like a skim, like I'll go through, I'll sit down with it for an afternoon and kind of re- revisit my favorite passages. But I do, I mean, I, it is, it is, um, I don't know, it's one of my favorite things in all of life is Gatsby. So then, okay, so to circle back to what I was saying, then when people who are like our friend in her 40s um, reading it, you read it with a different lens, right? Because when you're in your 40s, you're like, that is not practical. (laughs) That is not realistic. So she broke your heart. So what? Suck it up and go on with life. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I had a friend post in Facebook last year that she um, had just read The Catcher in the Rye for the first time. And she was like, I don't get it. Like Holden's a whiny baby. And I was like, okay, uh, hold on. (laughs) If you read Catcher in the Rye, if you missed that window, you missed it. Like if you don't understand the angst of Holden Caulfield, then, then you missed it. Like just call that ship sailed. Right. Yes. Here's my question though. Your great love for Gatsby um, is about a singular story and character and Mm -hmm. novel. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, is F. Scott Fitzgerald your favorite oh. writer or or is that just your favorite book? Because for me, it and Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three are not my favorite books of all time, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Stephen King is my favorite. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. And honestly, I have to say I'm the exact opposite. Like, I don't know that I would ever say Fitzgerald is my favorite writer of all time. If If you really pinned me down... I honestly think it would probably be like Toni Morrison, um, her novels, um, Beloved, The Bluest Eye. Those are just a few that you maybe have heard of. Um, golly, her way with words. I, I would be more inclined to say her 
than Fitzgerald. Although, again, I could gush on and on about how he created The Great Gatsby, and it is my favorite book. But I, that's so interesting to think about. I do not think I would say he's my favorite writer. That's funny, huh? And we have really different tastes. We have very different tastes. So I think it's also interesting as we're sitting here like going on and on about our favorites that my book, and I certainly don't mean to sound elitist like this, but my book would be considered to be more of highbrow literature. It's the type of novel that is studied by students in high school and college and held up as sort of the, the, uh, the great American novel. Yours, in some circles, people who are not familiar with Stephen King's mastery, let's just be clear, the uninitiated into Stephen King's um, great mastery of literature may consider it to be more lowbrow. I'm not saying that it is. (laughs) I, I am aware of that. I totally own that and I'm fine with it. I read a lot of highbrow literature. I studied literature in college. I read a lot of classics. I'm currently doing a challenge where I'm reading or rereading more classics. I read um, contemporary New York Times reviewed books. Like I, I read plenty of highbrow. And Stephen King is not just a guilty pleasure like I secretly don't tell anyone I read him. Like I espouse his <laughs> genius and I have no shame in doing so. Right. You are championing the King cause. I can tell. I really, I wish you all could see Laura's face right now. I cannot explain to you the full face beaming that is happening as she talks. I mean, like there's just so much light coming out of you as you're talking about King. That's amazing. I mean, you're making, you're making a really solid argument to the point where I am probably going to have to force myself to pick up some King. Maybe I'll start with 11. Is it 11? 20? 112263 okay. it's um that's the date that uh JFK was assassinated okay okay and it's uh this gives nothing away so this a man ac- accidentally finds a way to time travel and he decides like to be a good citizen the best way um that one could use such knowledge would be to go back and change a horrible thing that happened in history so that's the whole story of of his time travel and his attempts to and if it really is good or not good to to change history. And so it's and it's a, there's a ton of relationship and character and you know some philosophical things and it is a, it is a really really good book for anyone. There's nothing scary about it. There's nothing horror about it for sure. I mean, you know, it gets a little tense. It gets a little suspenseful in times, but it's not scary in any way. And I think it's one of the best things he's written. So if you are very hesitant on Stephen King, but you're willing to give it a try, my, it's actually my first recommendation for people to start with now is start with eleven twenty two sixty three and see how you feel about his writing. That's fantastic. I love it. I, I feel fully convinced. I really do. So we would love to hear from you all. Everybody has a favorite all-time book. Everybody does. So find us on Twitter or even, hey, even post a picture on Instagram and use the hashtag sort of awesome so we can see it and discuss and uh, weigh in on Stephen King and weigh in on The Great Gatsby and all of those things. We would love to continue this conversation. Laura and I, how many hours through the years do you think we've spent talking about books? Like a lot of hours. I I could not be good, good friends with someone who didn't like to talk about books. Oh, same here. Oh my gosh, same here. Yeah. So we we will talk about it with you wherever you find us, for sure. So you mentioned guilty pleasure when you were talking about Stephen King, that you don't read it as a guilty pleasure. Um, We actually have a listener question that does specifically ask us what our guilty pleasures are. We have a listener question someone submitted to us through the Tumblr. And just as a reminder, you can go to sortaawesomemegan.tumblr.com and click on the Ask Us link and share with us your questions to cover on the show. And that is where this question, an anonymous one, came from. And this listener wrote in, Hey, Megan, love the show and have really enjoyed your podcast recommendations. I am especially loving the podcast. I think a person's pop culture favorites say so much about a person. So would you consider sharing with us your pop culture guilty pleasures? So first of all, thank you so much, listener, for sending in that question to us. And I'm glad you're loving the podcast. I speak of them often because they're one of my very favorites. So I'm glad that you're enjoying that. 
Pop culture guilty pleasures. I asked Laura to make up a list um, as well of her guilty pleasures. Um, I'll go ahead and share mine first. And listen, you guys, I'm just going to tell you right now that a couple of these are like super guilty and also super made for adults only. (laughs) So they are definitely confessional type of guilty pleasures. So the first one is 100% for adults only. In the TV realm, my guiltiest of guilty pleasures. <laughs> so, I really can't. I really can't believe I'm admitting to this in public. But uh, a series that came on HBO for quite a few years, and that is True Blood. True Blood is based on the Sookie Stackhouse novels from Charlene Her- Harris. Charlene Harris. Am I saying Wait, that? hold on. You're telling me that you can watch True Blood, <laughs> where I know there is some vampire gore happening. <laughs> But you refuse um, to entertain Stephen King and his writing? True Blood is not scary. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. <laughs> it's so campy and cheesy and silly and ridiculous. And I love it. I can't help myself. Now, it's not in production anymore. In fact, I honestly have not seen the last season. We got rid of cable before the last season was released. So uh, eventually, I'm sure I'll watch it somewhere streaming. The first, I'm going to say this about True Blood. The first three seasons are the best. And after that, it goes completely and totally off the rails. But I still loved every minute of it, even the stupider it got. I still loved it. I still watched it every week. It was a Sunday night favorite on HBO. Um, Gosh, it's it's horrible. It is. Okay, so Laura mentioned, if you're not familiar with it at all, it's it's about vampires and also werewolves and um, fairies and uh, shapeshifters. <laughs> and it all takes place. I know Laura's rolling her eyes so hard right now. It takes place in Louisiana, around the Shreveport area. I have no explanation for it. And that's the great thing about guilty pleasures. You don't really have to explain yourself. There's no rhyme or reason to why we get attached to our guilty pleasures, but it's a longtime favorite of mine. Okay, favorite movie, again, also not not for the kiddos to watch um, for a couple of reasons, but it's the movie Super Troopers, which, Laura, I think you've seen. In mm. fact, I feel like you have some kind of connection to the the writing team that's behind Super Troopers. Is that right? Am I remembering that? Right? Uh, well, the writing team are the stars. Those yes, guys yes, are yes. a group of um, guys called Broken Lizard. Yes, that's right. And I met one of them, Paul Soder, on an airplane, actually. We sat together on an airplane and became friends. And then um, the other one, Jay Chandrasekhar, is friends with my husband, has actually appeared in one of my husband's films. So, yeah, we're friends with those guys. Okay. Well, Super Troopers. And they're so funny. They are so funny. It's probably one of their most well-known full-length productions. I know they've done a lot of things, but I don't even remember how or when or why Kyle and I came across this movie, but we thought it was so hysterical. We have seen it dozens of times, and we use lines from this movie and communicating with each other all the time. I'm not going to uh, specifically share any of those lines with you, but it is so funny. It is not, I mean, it's, again, one of those that you can't really explain. It's totally lowbrow, but really solidly funny comedy. So that is my guilty pleasure in the movie realm. Okay, music. My guilty pleasure in music is fellow Oklahoman, Garth Brooks. <laughs> Honestly, Wait, why do we feel guilty about loving Garth Brooks? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I, I honestly have a soft spot for all of 90s country music. It just, it, ha- it has a very special sentimental place in my heart. Um, I don't really feel like Garth Brooks is somebody that people look to as like writing really powerful, life-changing lyrics. Excuse me, the dance. <laughs> okay. I'll grant you that. <laughs> Maybe the dance has changed more lives than I'm giving <laughs> than I'm giving it excuse credit for. Me, excuse me, unanswered prayers. <laughs> oh Who has gosh. not sung that in their heart about an old love? <laughs> Let's be honest, we all have. 
Um, man, I love a Garth Brooks song, though. They are irresistible to me. I will stop what I am doing to sing a Garth Brooks song when it comes on the radio. I will find it on Spotify or on YouTube. I, I can't help myself when it comes to Garth Brooks. Again, there's no explaining. There's no, like... Well, his mastery of the uh, <laughs> harmony, and I don't even know how to talk in music lingo. There's no thing. There's nothing. It's, it's, it's kind of just fun, bubblegum country music from the 90s, and I will never stop listening to it. Okay, last category, if you want to talk about books that, are, are, that actually are kind of a guilty pleasure for me. I don't know. Some people... Some people may not see this as guilty pleasure. I'm going to go with John Grisham novels, which I feel like started out strong. A Time to Kill, The Firm, some of his earliest novels um, are really compelling. I mean, they're fun to read and they're, they're well written. I feel like the reason I call them a guilty pleasure is as he began to you know, kind of churn out the novels, after a while, they just sort of kind of fit into a John Grisham novel pattern. And become a little bit indistinguishable from the others. Um, I hope I'm not being too harsh in my assessment of Grisham novels. But again, to this day, I will pick up a Grisham novel and just devour it and be completely and utterly delighted by, by his whole John Grisham thing. I just love it. It's, it's not, again, it's not, it's not going to change your life. But it sure is fun to sit down and read. So those are my guiltiest of guilty pleasures. Laura, I know you have a list to share too. I do. Okay. So my TV guilty pleasure is just so cliche prepare, but I watch every episode of Real Housewives. I know. Of wherever. I don't see, I've never, again, never watched a single minute of it. How, how are we friends? I don't know. <laughs> I don't get the Real Housewives um, thing, but make your case. Well, I don't. E- I can't even make a case. Like you either, you either like it or you don't. It's like I don't understand people who watch The Bachelor, and I have mm. dear, wonderful, smart women who are obsessed with The Bachelor. So yeah. I can't judge them, and you can't judge me for watching Real Housewives. I will say I have standards, and I do not wor- watch certain cities. <laughs> okay, which are the worst cities then? I'm not going to say the worst cities. I will say the best cities. (laughs) Okay, the best ones. The best ones are New York is my favorite of all time. Um, Beverly Hills, I I don't think has the best cast, but it's in my city. So I like have a special, you know, I like seeing their lives there, which is so different from mine. Radically, radically different from mine, by the way. And I also like the OC now. I never watched the OC for like 10 years. I didn't. It's the, it's the original and longest running Real Housewives, Orange County. And I didn't watch it in the beginning. But I've started watching it in the last, I guess, three seasons. And I do really, I like it more than I would have thought. And then uh, my husband's favorite, if you want to know, is Atlanta. He watches it. Okay. So we watched those four cities. I never got on to New Jersey or Miami or have there, have there been others? I don't know. Oh, there was a DC one that was not good. So I just like Real Housewives. You know, at this point, they're not even that good anymore, but I can't not watch them. Like, yeah, I get it. It's that's what, that's the problem with reality shows. It's almost like an addiction that you can't explain because of dopamine or whatever. Like, so, <laughs> No, I mean, I get it. Like I said, I continued watching True Blood long after it stopped making sense or even really seeming to try to make sense. I still watched it. I loved it. So I get it totally. Yeah, I can't even explain my Real Housewives thing, but I I watch them and and talk about them on Twitter. I mean, that's how much I watch them. (laughs) Okay, my favorite movies. This is Guilty Pleasure movies. I like a lot of cheesy movies that I don't even call guilty pleasures. I just call my favorite movies, which is like, (laughs) which is like Legally Blonde and Troop Beverly Hills and Sweet Home Alabama and, you know, movies that are just my favorites. That's all they are. 
my guilty pleasure movies um, <laughs> are the Jackass movies. Well, of course they are. Of course they are. Yeah. Because um, my husband makes those movies. Mm-hmm. He creates them, directs them. Those are his movies. And what's funny about that is that those, that is not something that I ever would have ever in a hundred million thousand years have watched on my own. Like, I would not have thought that, you know, bathroom boy humor is funny. But over the years, not only because it's Jeff's work, but my own taste, I actually now find them hilarious. And if they're on the TV, which they're all, you know, often they're replaying on cable TV somewhere, I will stop and watch them. I will stop and watch my husband's movies because I think they're funny. <laughs> so that's my guilty pleasure for movies. Um, for, have you ever seen a Jackass movie? I'm just I, saw, I saw the first one. I did. Yes. Oh. That that would be the extent of my Jackass knowledge. I, I think <laughs> Kyle has seen all of them, I feel like. Um, yeah, I know I know lots of people, men and women alike, who have seen the whole franchise and, and adore them. They're so funny. And it's so funny. This is something that actually you and I have talked about. But, you know, when Jackass came out as um, first as a TV show and then was made into a movie, like we were a lot younger. That was that was a long time ago, honestly. Mm hmm. Um, it was in the 90s, late 90s. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's never a surprise when I uh, when the topic should come up that people our age and, you know, a little older, a little younger really loved them, lo- loved the whole thing of it all. So that's funny. I can just imagine you like bumming around the house and, oh, hey, Jackass is on. I'm just going to sit down and watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Um, good stuff. Okay, so good stuff. My favorite music, Guilty Pleasure, I am just not ashamed of this either, but I can boogie to some Taylor Swift. Oh, I, I love Taylor. Her. I love her. I do. I am late to the Taylor Swift game, but 1989 is an amazing, amazing album. Um, I love her. And she's not my typical. First of all, I can't remember if we talked about this much, but I'm not super into music. Like, period. I, right. I don't listen to a ton of music. Music is not my love language. So I don't feel passionately one way or the other about music. Now, in particular, as far as pop goes, she would not typically be, on the surface, what I would like. I don't like when they feud with one another. And oh, they, yeah, yeah. You know, dance with poles on the stage. And they, like, I don't like any of that. Like, it's not my thing. I don't like it. I don't think it's cute or sexy or funny or anything. But Taylor, man, she can write a song. She can. Yes. I agree. And I, yeah, I'm, I'm team Taylor for sure. So that's my guilty pleasure. I mean, I will hear a song. The first time I hear one of her songs before I realize it's her, I'm always like, this is a good song. What is this song? And then someone will be like, this is Taylor Swift. And I'm like, of course it is. The only pop music that I listen to practically. What's the next category? Uh, books, reading. Books. Okay. My favorite guilty pleasure, and these are sort of hard to name because it feels like it feels uncomfortable to call something a guilty pleasure because that implies that it's bad. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. So I kind of hate calling it this, but it, whatever. My favorite guilty pleasure right now is Leanne Moriarty. She's a writer. She's wrote What Alice Forgot, most recently Big Little Lies, which is my favorite. She's written six novels. She's from Australia. I've read all six. Um, and I just enjoy her writing. She, but the reason I call her a guilty pleasure, even though I just, I frankly just really like her, but you know, she's on the lighter side. She's a beach read for sure. Um, she doesn't go so far as to be total chick lit. Although I know some people would consider her so, but she's, um, not serious or sophisticated in her, in her storytelling. But I just think she is a great, fun female writer about females. That's my current reading guilty pleasure. Love it. That's a great list. That is a great list. So again, this is such a topic that I, uh, it's the kind of topic that I could just, I'd love to ask a lot of people this. It's a, that's kind of a great, um, kind of like dinner party question or just 
I don't know. It's a good conversation because everybody has their thing that they're like, oh my gosh, you're going to, you're going to judge me, but I totally love this. So if you would like to share your guilty pleasures with us again, find us and uh, use the hashtag sort of awesome so we can hear what you are digging that you don't necessarily uh, tell all your friends and family about. So just as a reminder, you can find me on Twitter at sort of awesome Meg. You can find us in the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash sort of awesome hangout. Those are places that you can find me. And again, now on Instagram that you can find the show at sort of awesome show. Laura, where can we find you across the internet? I am always at hollywoodhousewife.com. I'm on Twitter and Instagram as Hollywood H wife and on Facebook as the Hollywood housewife. Excellent. Thank you so much. You guys for joining us today at Sorta Awesome. Don't forget that show notes for this and every episode are available at sortaawesomemegan.tumblr.com. While you're there, you can click on that Ask Us link to submit your questions for us to cover and laugh about and discuss at length (laughs) on an upcoming episode. You could also sign up for the show's newsletter, which includes extra tidbits of awesome. And you can do that by going to tinyletter.com slash sortaawesome. If you're enjoying the show, it would be unbelievably awesome if you would take the time to subscribe, rate, and review the show in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if iTunes isn't your thing, we would love it if you would just tell a friend about the show. I have to give a shout out, as always, to the band Prager for allowing us to use the song Strut for our in and out music. To find out more about Prager's nasty beats and pretty chords, go to pragermusic.com. And I'll meet you back here next time as we discover, explore, and discuss all the things that make life sorta amazingly awesome.